Take your Bible, turn to John chapter 7. John chapter 7, we're going to be in verse 25. Yep, she belongs to us, that right there. Those are fun noises. It's fun to think about, just on a random note. You do realize that when the Lord Jesus taught, that's what he had all the time in the back. He conducted a family ministry in the same way. It's fun to think about the Lord Jesus loved the little children and has noises like that in his sermons. He can have it. I think we can too. This is God's word. John chapter 7 verse 25. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is speaking openly. And they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from. And when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, You know me, and you know where I come from. But I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him. And the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer. And then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks? Teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, you will seek me and you will not find me? And where I am, you cannot come. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do ask yet again for your help. May your spirit move in us. That you would speak and we would hear. Give life and light, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to take you back to middle school. Well, I guess some of you forward to middle school, but back to middle school. And you're like, all right, I'm done with this sermon. I don't want to go back to middle school. Take you to that moment in, I guess it was biology class. Where you're, you're sitting there at the desk or maybe you're standing at the table. And it's you standing there and for me at least it was this absolutely petrified, mortified little girl who was about to turn ghostly white and pass out. When the teacher walks by and puts the tray with the giant formaldehyde frog on it. Now, if you remember correctly, it was most likely the largest frog that you had ever seen. I don't know where they find these things and how they manage to grow them this big, but I remember it being about that size. 
And I remember kind of standing there thinking, and I'm sure you did the same, going, I I know what this is. (laughs) What am I supposed to do with that? I'm not touching it. I'm not cutting it. I'm not looking at it. I'm not smelling it. What do you want me to do with this? And it's kind of this great moment of just, I know what's going on, but what in the world do you expect me to do? My lab partner probably didn't take it quite so well. I I did that experiment by myself. We kind of arrive at a similar type of, of stage in the ministry of the Lord Jesus where he has been explicitly teaching about his Uh, heavenly home, his heavenly father, his connection to heaven, explicitly identifying himself kind of as the Messiah, as this one from God. And now we finally get to the point where the crowd is required to kind of do something. The past several sermons have focused in on John and Jesus presenting what type of Christ are you comfortable with? Will you take the Christ of your own making, the Jesus in my own image, my own personal Jesus, or will you take the Christ as he is, as he has explained, as he has presented himself? Well, now the tone changes, and it's no longer what type of Jesus will you believe in. He's already put all of that to rest. He's explained who he is and what he's doing. Now the turn has happened, the change has taken place, and the question changes. It's no no longer what type of Christ, what type of Jesus, what type of Messiah... It's what are you going to do with this? What are you going to do with this inconvenient truth, this Messiah right in your midst? What will you do with him? And here we see the crowds and the Jews and the Pharisees and Sadducees all wreck themselves on the rock that is the Lord Jesus You remember this is the Feast of Booths happening here in chapter 7. It's been kind of a fast forward in the ministry of Jesus. This is his last festival, his last religious gathering, um, like kind of major significant uh, religious calendar event prior to the Passover that would take place the next spring. October of 29, it's just before all of everything kind of starts happening. This one has been, to put it delicately, a bit tense as he has traveled through the city and everybody kind of knows who he is at this point in his ministry. And there has been, I would say, verbal combat throughout the time where the Jews try to put him in his place and his place is in heaven and they are too hard-hearted to believe and it's all kinds of problems. And we get to the final ending here, uh, the, the ending of the conversation as it's happening and beginning the turn to the end of his ministry. And you see a number of different characters and different questions, and they're going to highlight uh, this aspect of what are you going to do with this Jesus? Will you believe in him? Will you trust in him? Will you receive him? 
And it starts in verse 25 as Jesus has been teaching in the temple. He's been teaching in the city. He's been traveling around. And some of the people of Jerusalem begin to wonder. They've listened to him. They know what's going on. They know who this guy says that he is. They're fully aware. He says, I came from heaven. I can tell you what God is like because I've seen him face to face. There's no kind of, well, I think Jesus was probably just a good moral teacher. They don't believe that. They understand he's claiming that he's from heaven. And so the crowd, understanding what Jesus is saying about himself, begins a really kind of uh, wonderfully rhetorical kind of question. Is this not the man they try to kill? He's speaking, he's speaking openly, and they, they say nothing to him. And kind of, in essence, they, they ask the question of, why is he still talking? Why is he still talking? And they're assuming a negative answer here, but it's a great question because it's tipping their hand towards their relationship with Christ. Because Jesus has said, I'm from heaven, I'm the Messiah, I'm the one who will ultimately redeem you. I've seen the Father, the Father and I are one. He's he's laid out for them his connection to glory. And so the crowd is forced into this kind of decision element of what will I do with a man who says that he has seen God face to face because he is from heaven. Well, ultimately, we kind of have two options, really, don't we? We can either say that he's a liar, at which point in this culture, liars about that kind of thing got killed, and rather quickly, or we can say that he's legit. That the reason why he says, I've been to heaven, I've seen the Father, I I know what God is like is because I am God, I came from heaven, I belong there, it's my home. That he's legit. It's it's one or the other. It can't be both. There is no room for this good moral Jesus in their eyes. It's either he is Messiah, he is God's anointed, he is from heaven itself, or he is a loony. He's a liar. He is no good. And so they have this wonderful rhetorical question highlighting this, don't they? How is this guy still talking? How is it that he's still talking? Because we all think that he's a liar. We all think that he's just yammering. How have they not killed this guy yet? And they follow it sarcastically. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? Because they understand the only type of person that doesn't get killed in that circumstance is the real deal. Because all fake messiahs will go away, all fake saviors will pass away, all false and you know, pallid and weak, and they're all going to pass away. But the real messiah, well, that's, that's the issue. He's the one that will stick around. Could it be he is the real deal? Well, actually, they are assuming he's not the real deal. They're kind of more in a snarky, kind of cynical kind of way, saying, well, could it be that uh, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the religious leaders, could it be that they're such bozos that they've missed it? 
Could it be that they've been fooled by this guy? Could it be they think that he's the Christ because we know the real answer? Verse 27, we know where this man actually comes from. We know his kin. We know his pedigree. We know where he was born. We know that he is this poor, uneducated, traveling carpenter who's got some really ragtag bozo disciples who really aren't that clever. And we know that that certainly can't be what the Messiah actually looks like. I mean, there's no way that the Messiah has come from among us. There's no way. In fact, they even go so far as to state that at the end of verse 27. For we know no one will know where the Messiah comes from, which is just patently false. The scriptures are abundantly clear. The Pharisees say at the very beginning of uh, the Gospels, they all know where's the Messiah going to come from. He's going to come from Bethlehem. So much so that when the, the Magi, when the wise men ask, they tell them. Now, they don't believe a word of it because they don't go looking for him, but they, everyone knows the Messiah is going to come from Bethlehem. And it's interesting that they're now forced, the crowd in essence is forced to make a judgment call. We know Christ, we know Jesus says he comes from heaven, but we know his family. We know his mom, we know his brothers, we know his kin. What are we going to do with that? In fact, Jesus clarifies, he forces the issue, verse 28. He proclaimed as he's teaching in the temple. He kind of yells it out so they all know. In essence, you think you know me. You know me. You think you know where I come from. But I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I came from heaven because the Father sent me. And the real issue here is you don't know the Father, so you don't know me. Jesus is confronting them. This is kind of, in essence, really a one-point sermon, but in three separate illustrations. But he's confronting them with the reality, will you receive me as I am, not as you want? Will you believe in Jesus Christ? Will you trust in Him? Will you place your hope and obedience in Him? Will He be your resting place? For you see, the crowd at this point is hung up on the fact that He doesn't look like they expect, that He didn't come from where they expect, that He's not impressive, that He's not imposing, that He's not this just kind of amazing, spectacular, unbelievable, gripping kind of guy. Many years ago, I was traveling in the UK with my college uh, accountability partner and just providentially, we happened to be going through downtown London right as there was a big movie premiere or whatever, and one of the lead actors, uh, which everybody knows, was there. And it's funny because you see him on film, and he has these unbelievably piercing blue eyes, and he, he's tall, and he's dashing, and he's handsome, and he's this just kind of elegant man, and you think, man, that's what manliness looks like. And it's funny, standing right next to him when he walks down the, you know, the, the red carpet about four and a half feet from me, you think, yeah, he's really not that impressive. He's like 
nine inches shorter than what you would think that he would be. And he's really quite pudgy. And his blue eyes are obviously fake, because they're not really that blue. And he's kind of balding. And he looks so unbelievably ordinary. Takes a lot of the mystery out of the movies. And you're like, well, he looks really normal. You see, this is what they're struggling with with Jesus. They're so confused because they're expecting a movie star Messiah, and they've been given a normal one. They've been given one that looks like the kid from right down the street, and they don't know what to do with that. And he's calling them to respond. No longer do you get to exist in this limbo land where maybe I like him, maybe I don't. I'll believe certain parts of him. I'll follow certain parts of his commands, but the inconvenient ones, I'm going to kind of push away. No. This is the Jesus from heaven. And he makes all of the demands and all of the commands that God the Father makes from heaven, for he is from heaven. Will we accept his origin? (laughs) It's not simply from earth. His dual natures, he comes from heaven and the crowd can't get over it. I know God, 29, for I have come from him and he sent me. And again, we, we think on this and honestly our... The language gap is a big deal and our lack of understanding is a big deal, but we sometimes kind of like to soften what we think that he's saying here. The interesting thing is the Jews get the significance of what he says because what's the next thing that happens? Oh, by the way, they tried to arrest him for it because they understand that he's proclaiming divinity. They understand that he's proclaiming himself to be from heaven. They understand there is no single way this man could simply be a good teacher. It's impossible for them. He's either a heretic that deserves to die, or he is the very son of God. So they try to arrest him. It doesn't work, because he is from heaven, and he has the protection of heaven, and it's not time yet. They try. doesn't take. Okay. The story changes slightly in verse 31, and as the crowd is kind of left to linger and left to ponder, some of them begin to believe in him, and not necessarily trust in him, but, but have the idea that, you know what, this actually could be the real deal. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense yet, but maybe it is. And so they ask again a rhetorical question, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? Notice, it's, it's not, again, receiving him. It's not believing in him. It's tr- not trusting in him. It's this inquisitive, well, maybe. Well, maybe. Maybe he'll give enough proof that I can be reasoned into trusting in him. Maybe he'll give enough proof that it will become abundantly clear. Maybe he'll give more proof than healing the sick and Casting out demons. Maybe he'll give more proof than teaching in such a way that no one has ever heard. Maybe he'll give more proof than proclaiming himself to be from heaven and having the Father's approval placed upon him in baptism. Maybe he'll give more proof than what God gives himself. (coughs) 
They can't accept His work the way that it is. They get hung up on what they perceive the Christ to be like. And so they get hung up on His origin and the where He comes from and the way that God has ordained that. They get hung up on His earthly ministry and the miracles and signs that He's doing. Maybe it's not enough. Maybe it, you know, if I were in charge of the Messiah, it would look a little different. If I were in charge, it would be a different thing. And then they continue on, not just his origin, not just his earthly work, but ultimately his kind of glorious, redemptive, heavenly work. They have a problem with it. The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering uh, these things about him, and that's when they start to panic. They're like, people are starting to kind of see him a little bit favorably. We've got to put the kibosh on this. It can't continue anymore. We have to stop it. We have to prevent Jesus from gaining any more impact. So they send officers to arrest him and give you a little secret. They don't arrest him. And we find out later in the book, look at verse 46. They, they actually, uh, verse 45, they ask the officers why they didn't arrest him. And what do they say in verse 46? <laughs> no one's ever spoken like this guy. They don't arrest him because of what he says. Okay, that's, that's fair enough. What does he say that stops them? Jesus says, I will be with you a little longer, and then I'm going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. His answer is, I'm only going to be here for a little while, and after I'm done, I'm going back to heaven. And I'm going to be with God in heaven, and oh, by the way, you're not coming because you don't believe. And it's interesting, they, they get the full impact of that. And it's one of those going, well, just to kind of hedge our bets, if he is actually headed back to heaven, I'm going to have a tough time being the guy that arrested the Messiah. So I'm not going to do it, and I'm going to let the next guy do it. Because I refuse to be the one who was known as accidentally having put the Messiah in. I don't think he's the Messiah, but I'm hedging my bets. I'm making sure my bases are covered, because I don't want to go down in history as that guy, just in case he's true. They refuse to kind of deal with and actually own up to it. So, it's so weak-minded. It's so cowardly. Well, if he is going back to heaven, maybe. And the Jews make it clear. They mock him for it. Where does this man intend to go? We can't find him. We can find anyone anywhere. Where does he think he's going to get to? Oh, I know where he's going. He's probably going to the dispersion, the Jews that have spread all over the earth and the ones that are with the Greeks. He's probably going to those dogs, the, the Greeks. He's probably going to those awful excuses of humanity that aren't really like us. Oh, or that where you're going to go. And they refuse to kind of receive his work. You see, these two interchanges, both of these paragraphs are illustrations of people that are forced to come in contact with the Lord Jesus. They come in contact with His origin, which is both from heaven and from earth. They come in contact with His earthly work, which is to do signs and miracles and to verify and prove His redemptive labor. They have problems with His heavenly work that He will eventually go back to glory and ultimately judge both the living and the dead. 
that some folks, his people will go to heaven with him. And the sad reality is that his enemies will be destroyed in hell forever. They're presented with this truth, this Jesus, the God-man, the Redeemer, and the Judge. And what do they do? They're ambivalent. They're wishy-washy. They're hedging their bets. They're covering their bases. They kind of mock him, but not so openly and so terribly that it would be you know, inappropriate or rude, just slightly sinful, not you know, abomination kind of thing. And in doing so, Jesus is presenting and John is presenting this in such a way that we as the reader have the same question placed before us. We've seen Jesus in the text. We've seen this Jesus is the God-man. He's from heaven and He's from earth. Heavenly Father, earthly mother, amazing birth story. He's the agent of creation who stepped inside creation. And we've seen that this agent of creation, the second person of the Trinity, has stepped inside creation for a purpose. He's stepped inside to pay for sins. And he's done all of the signs and the miracles and the teaching that accompanies it as proof that what he's about to do later in the book is going to mean something. And we've seen already he's presenting here in a bit veiled but hidden reference in 34. It's a bit veiled, but it's there that he's the judge. He's going to be the one that's going to make all of the difference. The great winnower, the the one who puts his good folks, his, his saints his sheep on one side and destroys his enemies. And John and Jesus' challenge is no less true for us today. What will we do with this truth in front of us? Are we going to follow the kind of pattern of the Jews and my lab partner that kind of balks and blanches and gets a little sweaty and a little uncomfortable and says, you know what? I can't handle this truth. I can't look at it. I'm just going to kind of put it away and you deal with that. And then once it's all cleaned up, then I'll come back and kind of face reality. Some of you did that in biology class. You know you did, didn't you? If you had to do the fetal pig, that was even worse. I'm not going to face this truth. I'm going to hide from it. I'm not going to let it shape my reality. I'm going to try to ignore it. I'm going to turn away. I'm not going to look at Jesus. The second great temptation is that we as believers want to dabble with Christ. We want to have parts of Him and pieces of Him, but not all of Him. We want to have the idea that He's like me in some ways, but just enough to make Him safe and timid and to make Him easily palatable and easy. This is the great American challenge now as we watch a a national church, the American church, that's in essence fallen hook, line, and sinker for this lie that Jesus looks like me. That He's ordinary like me, and not simply because he's fully human, but because he's not divine. See, this is the great danger. I mean, you walk about in our community, think about how many people, everybody loves Jesus. Everybody loves Jesus. And you ask them why, and they say, well, he was a good man. (coughs) True. Not enough, but true. Well, he was a good teacher. Have you ever listened to what he taught? 
Obviously you haven't. Because he doesn't leave room for that category. It doesn't exist. We can't simply reduce him to this thing. We're in the same shoes as the Jews and as the Pharisees. What will we do? And the fun thing, the beautiful thing is that as these books continue, John and the other Gospels, we see by and large, it's the people that we wouldn't expect that miss it. It's the people that are well-educated, the people that are well-spoken, that are from kind of finer, wealthier aspects of culture, the ones that you would kind of expect to understand the world, that are so full of themselves that they miss the story. And it's the rejects, it's the outcasts, it's the losers that come to Christ and just in desperation fling themselves at his feet. They don't know what's going to happen. They don't know the solution. They don't know all of the answers. They just throw themselves at his feet and say, help, I, I got no chance. Many of us in here have been believers a long time. And I might maybe just lovingly kind of poke at you a little bit as your pastor and say as you've grown in the Lord and walked in the Lord and studied His Word, have you maybe forgotten a little bit of that desperation? Has maybe a little bit of that like, I got this, I'm okay. You know, I'm a functional human. I've figured things out. Has maybe that creeped in a little bit and you've lost a little bit of that just unbearable dependency that I desperately need Christ. For without Him, I don't have a chance. Those of you that were converted later in life, you remember that feeling. You know it. That's what those first years and months and days were characterized as. This just unbelievable dependency of desperation. Might we, in confrontation with God's Scripture, not grow a stiff neck or a hard heart? May we not drift or be hardened, but rather, in submission, yield and fall at His feet, confess our sins, and find help and relief in Christ. You see, the message hasn't changed. It's not going to change. And the response hasn't changed, and it's not going to change. What are God's people to be like? They're ones that are desperately seeking Christ. You see, that's why we started with that Matthew 5 section where Jesus in His first sermon presents what saints are supposed to look like. And as you read that, you're like, my goodness, that is just not what I look like. And if I'm going to have any shot of looking like that, I must have Jesus within me. I must have the Spirit changing my life, making me new. I must have Christ. And again... Maybe this is your story and you're like, yes, I love it. Great, keep preaching it. You know what? Great, tell your friends. Because so often today in our current culture, in our current church, the message of Jesus has been reduced to good people go to heaven, bad people go to hell. That is not right. 
It's people that are desperate for Christ, that have thrown themselves at his feet, that are clinging to him. They're the ones that go to heaven. The ones that have a Savior. May it be that this church always has that message of trusting in Christ, desperately seeking him and not resting in my own merits or abilities. We might always have that answer. Together, let's pray. Father in heaven, forgive us for our sins. Forgive us for our self-assurance, our confidence in our own merit and works. Might we find safety in Christ, our Redeemer and our Protector, in whose name we pray. Amen.